It was 167 years ago now that Charles Dickens wrote and first published his famous story, A Christmas Carol. This was in mid-Victorian England, where most of the traditions of Christmas, which we take for granted now, were really just starting. So all the stuff like Christmas trees and sending Christmas cards, carol singing, all the business about giving each other generous presents, family get-togethers, big meals involving turkeys and the like. This was, at the time, the new way to do Christmas. What I guess it was lacking at the time was some sort of sense of purpose to it, a moral vision to give it some purpose. And I think this is what Dickens was trying to supply through his story. And it's fascinating to read now of how this tale of a selfish man finding a festive spirit of generosity, how it was received at the time by the critics. And indeed, it was enthusiastically received at the time as nothing less than, and this is a quote, nothing less than a new gospel. And the popularity of that story has really never waned. Apparently, even the coming Doctor Who Christmas special is based upon it. We may well then have Dickens to blame for the mid-Victorian way of doing Christmas becoming the only right way to do Christmas. But of course, Dickens' vision of Christmas was a a godless, Jesus-free vision of Christmas. His new gospel was about men being prompted to change themselves, to behave a little more decently. And I just want to ask the question this morning, Have we been swindled? Have we been the victims of a simply enormous swindle as year by year we buy into this vision of Christmas? Has Dickens pulled a fast one on us, switching the real thing for something which in the end is vastly inferior? I think we should see this very clearly this morning because we too are looking at a Christmas carol. Well, perhaps not strictly a Christmas carol, since it was sung some six months before the, the very first Christmas event. But a song preparing us for the real Christmas, nonetheless. And I want to persuade you this morning that in Luke's story of Zechariah and his song, we have a similar, but in the end, vastly superior story to Dickens' story of Scrooge. Because Zechariah is a little like Ebenezer Scrooge, He's not as overtly cynical, perhaps, but he's still full of doubt. He's not as grumpy and sour, but he is still what you might call jaded. Both of them, I think, are lacking vision for the future. They're lacking imagination about what's going on in the world. It's just that Zechariah is is less of a caricature uh, than Ebenezer Scrooge. He's more like us, in other words, More so even than Mary, perhaps, who we looked at last week. And Luke's true story will show us a far more radical and plausible transformation than Dickens' story about Scrooge. It's one which Luke will use to deal with our doubts and our lack of expectation and imagination, our narrow vision and our narrow view of what salvation is, our lurking cynicism. It should revitalize our expectation about what God is doing through Jesus and is going to do. The scale of what he is doing, the simple, enormous magnitude of it and the surprising depth of what he is doing. 
We're going to look at this under three headings this morning. First, we'll be getting prepared to believe. This will give us the essential background to understand the song. Second then, getting prepared for something big. This is where we're going to look at the song itself. That's going to be the heart of what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, But then thirdly, getting prepared for a surprise. This is where we'll think about the song in the light of what happens in the rest of Luke's story and how the story finishes. So first then, getting prepared to believe. And what I hope we're going to see here first is how God prepares Zechariah to believe again by humbling him and by giving him an extraordinary opportunity to think afresh about what God is doing. As we stand alongside Zechariah in this story, uh, God will be doing that uh, for us too. Now we do need to go back to the beginning of the story here. Uh, So if you'd like to turn back with me, just one page, uh, to verse 6 of chapter 1. And uh, you may know that we were looking at this a couple of weeks ago on uh, on Sunday evening, this this episode. And in verse 6 there, you can see that Luke describes Zechariah and Elizabeth Uh, two ways, as both upright and blameless. In other words, these are more than outstanding citizens. Uh, You might say that they are outstanding Israelites. However, all is not well. Elizabeth is barren, and they have no children, and Luke reminds us that they're getting on in years. But then Zechariah has a vision, a vision in the temple, no less, And uh, he's told that Elizabeth will give birth to a son who will prepare the way for the Lord. It's a staggering thing to happen. The problem is that upright and blameless blameless as he may be, Zechariah doesn't quite believe it. This is verse 18. This is what he says. How can I be sure of this? More literally, that's according to what will I know this? Uh, In other words, Zechariah He's asking for more here. He's asking for some sort of sign that will confirm what he's been told. Now it is worth comparing this to the the parallel response of Mary uh, that we looked at last week. So this is flicking over the page again. Verse 34, Mary says this is a very similar situation after she's been told something by an angel too. What she says is this, how will this be? Now that may seem to you at first quite like Zechariah's response, but no, Mary is not doubting here. She is believing. She just is politely asking to know a little more about how it's going to work. So it's the unknown girl from the backwater of Galilee who feels the force of the Lord's favour. And as for the upright, well-respected religious man from Jerusalem, right at the heart of the things, right with access right to the heart of the temple... What about him? Well, there is this extraordinary reversal between these two characters here. And when, uh, when, when, when Zechariah asks his question, I don't think Gabriel can quite believe that he's been asked for a further sign. And you can imagine him saying at this point, come on, you've got an angel standing in front of you. I, I kind of imagine him spluttering a bit at this point. And he goes on to say, you want a sign? Well, here's an appropriate sign for you. Nine months of silence and muteness. Silence, I think uh, Zechariah was probably deaf during this period, as well as mute. They had to use sign language to communicate with him. 
So they present a, a remarkable picture to us, these two characters, Zechariah and, and Elizabeth. In some ways, the, the whole history of the last 400 years of God's people is compressed into their life story. Elizabeth was barren. That kind of sums up the state of the nation at this point. But there's hope. She's now expecting. Zechariah lives in silence for nine months. That corresponds to the 400 years of silence the people have experienced since the last prophet spoke, the prophet Malachi. In fact, Zechariah's period of enforced silence begins in verse 17 with Gabriel quoting the last words of Malachi. But again, there is hope. The experience does humble him, and he does speak again. I want us to pause here, and and for all of us this morning, to look very carefully at this character of Zechariah. And I do want everyone here this morning to, to ask the question, Am I like that? Look at him at the beginning of the story. Am I like that? Am I relying on my outward conformity, perhaps? My regular involvement, my long-standing membership of the church? Am I relying on those things, but, but kind of dimly aware also that underneath all of that, there is an emptiness. There is a jaded complacency, a lack of inspiration, a a lack of joy, a lack of imagination about what the Lord is doing. And as I think of myself, the, the truth is, you know, I am slow to believe. And much of the time I don't, really, I don't really believe that something big is going on. I'm silently demanding more proof before submitting myself fully to the Lord my God. Well, if that's you too, then let the Lord humble you as he humbled Zechariah. Let him humble you so that the truth can get into you. So that then, from your lips, as from Zechariah's lips, the truth can get out. And so we do also need to be checking ourselves about, uh, against what Zechariah came to see and asking ourselves, is the song that he came to sing Something we could sing. Is his vision of what God is doing in the world our vision? And if the answer is not yet, uh, then we need to keep listening at this point. And we need to let it work on us. Because after getting prepared to believe, there's getting prepared for something big. And this is the heart of what we're going to look at this morning. uh, From the song itself. So after nine months of meditation... Out it all comes. Now, Zechariah's lips are freed. What he sings seems to fall into two parts. The first part, this is from verses 68 to 75, is focused on praise for the Lord God of Israel. Praise for the big picture of how he, he will come to save his covenant people. That's the first part. The second part, this is from verses 76 to 79, focuses down on the detail of that. focuses down on Zechariah's son, John, and his role in preparing the way for the Lord. Now the first half of the song seems to boil down to this. Zechariah, having been humbled, now believes what the angel told him. He's now overflowing with praise because he's expecting soon what God's people have been longing for, the time when the Lord will visit them again. So we need to get straight here the, the timing of what Zechariah is talking about. 
Now you may have been surprised that our translation here has all this put in the past tense. But as I was saying last week, the way this is written in the original suggests that Zechariah is not actually talking about the past here. It's giving us a, a, what you might call a broad brush overview of history which is actually focused on the future and in some ways on the near future. Putting it in the past tense as we have it here is, is perhaps a little confusing but at least it emphasises Zechariah's sense of certainty about what's just about to happen. The coming of the Lord is so certain that it's as good as done. It's as good as done. And the main thing here about that coming of the Lord is, the main idea that comes up is the idea of salvation. The Lord will save his people from their enemies. You can see it's repeated at least three times here. Verse 68, he will redeem or ransom his people. He will do something at personal cost to rescue them from slavery and oppression. Verse 69, he will save them, that is, he will raise up a horn of salvation for his people in the house of his servant David. And that will bring salvation, verse 71, from their enemies and the hand of all who hate them. Verse 74, he will rescue or deliver his people from the hand of their enemies, yet again. Now, who are these enemies? We'll come back to that later. But the big idea here is salvation, And it's a salvation that the Lord has promised through his prophets long ago. It's a salvation that the Lord promised on oath to Abraham. This is a salvation that will enable the people to serve rightly and without fear. Look at the end of verse 74 with me, where Zechariah says his people are being rescued to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So then the Lord will save his people from their enemies, as is promised, so that they can serve him again. And the image right at the centre of this is the one that we see there in verse 69. The Lord has raised up a horn of salvation for his people in the house of his servant David. Now a, a, a horn of salvation is not what you might think at first. It's not a musical instrument that's being lifted up to, to be blown or anything like that. Uh, Now you can see from the footnotes in the Bibles that the horn here symbolises strength and it's almost certainly, in fact, not a musical instrument at all. It's rather something more like a a powerful weapon. Moses uh, talks about the horns of of the wild ox, for example, with which the people might gore the enemy nations around them. This is then a symbol of political power and military strength. And I guess if we were to update that image, uh, this is according to a fairly recent news article, if we want to update that image into a modern setting, we could could use a number of of deadly and effective modern weapons to do that. We might talk about the AC-130 aerial gunship of salvation. Apparently that's a, a very good weapon for killing all sorts of people hiding undercover. Or we might talk about the laser-guided, bunker-busting bomb of salvation. It's very good for killing people hiding under concrete. Or the .50 caliber sniper rifle of salvation, capable of killing someone not hiding at all because they're standing two kilometers away. An excellent present, that, for the assassin 
who prefers to work from home. But if Zechariah's choice of, of a military image to sum up salvation, if, if that leaves you feeling slightly cold or, or even uncomfortable as it, as it does me, let me say a couple of things about that here. First thing is, hold on, wait a little. There's more to say on what or who this secret weapon is. Second thing, I suspect, I suspect we feel a little uncomfortable about this military language, mostly because we haven't had the experience of living under military oppression. We just haven't had that experience, especially here in Peaceful Forward. But think perhaps of the, the nation of Poland in, in the last century. Modern Poland was reformed in 1918 after the Second World War, after over 100 years of foreign oppression. But they, they were then invaded by the Nazis, as you may know, in 1939. Then they were under Soviet control until 1989. Just think how the, some of those people may have felt in those very dark days of oppression. The longing they might have felt for some sort of weapon or, or warrior to defeat and overthrow their oppressors. And 2,000 odd years ago, Israel, or what was left of it, was a nation very much like that. It was a, a, a nation on a, on a major trade route. So as far as the nations around it were concerned, it was right for the taking. It was strategic. Now, uh, as they were able to do that, God's people knew at the time that only, that only happened because they had turned away uh, from the rule and protection of the Lord. But as they have repented of that, they have been praying desperately for mercy and deliverance, much as Zechariah and Elizabeth have been praying desperately for a child. The faithful amongst them just want to get on. They just want to get on with their national vocation, serving the Lord without fear. And I wonder if that surprised you too. The goal of peace and victory is, verse 74, service. Now, especially since the end of the Second World War, I think Western nations have tended to think that the goal of peace and victory is, is what? Well, it's something like, I guess, the unconstrained pursuit of prosperity and happiness. And it's extraordinary, really. We've, we've gone for that goal with real gusto, with real energy. And you may now that, know that uh, we are now, on average, three or four times as rich in real terms as this is, as we were back in 1945. But actually that pursuit has been a futile pursuit. Actually we're no happier than we were there. Perhaps after all then, we're pursuing the wrong thing. No, certainly, certainly we're pursuing the wrong thing. The right thing to pursue is the peace which will enable us to serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. What about the second half of the song? This is from verses 76 to 79. Well, here Zechariah zooms in from the big picture of salvation he's just painted, focuses down on his own son 